What is up Prackies, it's Liam Elysiums here and today on this Monday morning we have something very special for you. We've dug up the archived audio footage of where it all began at Pracky Symposium 1. Now this was an amazing event because we had this idea, um, Scott Harding, the co-founder of Pracky and I, for this symposium and we approached the university, we did it at the year before with this inkling and they said, yeah, well, we've got this massive event, so we'll give you two hours and off you go. So we did it to over 400 beginning teachers. So we got chucked into the deep end to say the least, but we had an amazing panel and it went off uh, really well. And it's been previously unreleased up until this point, but today we're bringing you the entire recording from beginning to end of the panel in the symposium event. So on the panel for this one, we had Darren Pitt, who was the principal of Springfield Anglican College. We had Elizabeth Ward, who was the, a beginning teacher at Brisbane Boys College. We had Scott Harding, who's the other co-founder of Pracky, who's a senior teacher at Springfield Anglican College teaching English and French. We had Suzanne Timone, who was one of the head managers of Queensland's uh, Good Start Early Learning Centres. And we had Amanda Hawkswell, on the end who was at that time the principal of Sherwood State School. We got some amazing questions and it really formed and solidified what Pracky was, what it was going to be and what it is today. So I'm really excited to bring to you where it all began. Enjoy. Thanks, Chris. Oy. If you don't know me, my name's Liam D. Elysiums. You may have had the unfortunate experience of being a group member with me, maybe, on one of my group presentations. Um, I'm, if you don't know me, I'm in secondary. I'm a fourth-year student. And it's quite weird, isn't it, being in this conference? Because you get this kind of weird momentum at the start of the course. You can't even imagine being a teacher. Yet now we've got this conference, maybe, for a few days. We've got our prac, and then we've got our internship, and then we've got the whole shenanigans with the portfolio that I'm still not certain about. And then we're out into the big bad world. And it does come with a, a mix of feelings. And I've had that mix of feelings kind of compounded in the last few days leading up to this event. As Chris said, I've been working with QUT for about a year trying to get this up off the ground. In fact, I'm the first student that's ever come to the Stepping Out conference and suggested something. Because I've had this feeling before, and that was on PRAC. Now, we get those weird feelings before PRAC. I, in fact, kept having this weird sleep paralysis, if any of you have had that before. It was on my first day of PRAC at Red Bank Plains State High School. And I woke up in the middle of the night and I was certain that my alarm had already gone off and I was about an hour late for school already. In fact, it was about two o'clock in the morning. I rushed to my cupboard, I started putting on clothes, and then I realized, if I'm already an hour late, how come it's pitch black outside? And I kept, that happened night after night, and I even went driving to school, my hands were shaking on the wheel. And that's what I was feeling coming up with this event. Because now I'm in front of my whole cohort, and early childhood and primary, and I'm thinking, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> Why did I want this so bad? Why did I work for a year to get this up and going? But it's because I want to help you. 
Now, at this conference, we've got people from different organisations. We've got groups of people from different groups, and they've kind of they've been telling you their story. Yet, I feel some of them, to be fair, are quite removed from our cohort. You know those those little questions that you have stuck in your minds about what do I do if a kid throws a chair at me? What's the best thing to put in my resume? What do I even do in a job interview? Those little questions that probably don't get answered in lectures. Those real micro things that you may talk about with your mates, but they never get covered in a unit. They never get covered in a lecture. Yet they're probably so so important to learn. And the only way we learn them is when we get chucked out on prac or our job, and we learn them in first-hand experience, and we make those mistakes. But what if it didn't have to be like that? That was the kind of idea behind Pracky, which is a YouTube channel. It's an Instagram. It's a podcast. But most of all, it's symposiums like this. So what I got, I went out and found the best educational experts that I could find for you. I didn't want just the best of the best. I wanted people from all different walks of life in terms of education, because sometimes if you're talking to You know, some granddaddy of the education that's worked in it for 80 plus years. It's kind of hard to connect with them. So I've got educational leaders. I've got people in the first few years of their career, and I've got myself as well, who's still a student. So, for the first half of this symposium, what's going to happen is I've got my lovely panel here. They're going to come up in a minute. And I'm going to give you the reasons why I chose them to be on this panel. And I think what most is important in something like this is if people talk about their passion area. If I got someone up, a first-year teacher, to talk about the intricacies of a car and QCAA, <laughs> it'd probably put you all to sleep, and it'd put you there to sleep as well, because that has to be your bag. Yet these people have chosen and elected their passion areas to talk to you for a few minutes. So we're going to hear their passion, things that they've elected. Next, I encourage you to ask questions. It's going to be like Q and A. I'll be Tony Jones, and we'll do Q and A like on the ABC. But for the time being, I'm assuming you all have devices. This is a bit different from the other symposiums that you've done, because I think it's kind of unfortunate that sometimes you want to ask a question. Yet, if the only way to ask that question is if you do it in front of 400 people and raise your hand, it's a bit intimidating. It's a bit shy. I know I've done that in even yesterday. I wanted to ask a question, yet the only avenue was to talk in front of all of you people, which is ironically what I'm doing right now. <laughs> so, if you go onto your web browser and you chuck in that particular code. So bit.ly/2uqklx5. You'll get a pop-up from Pracky that says, "Ask a question." Now, in the second half, I'm going to have an iPad, and all your questions will come up live to me, which means I can ask your question on your behalf. You don't have to talk in front of everybody. A good thing about that, as well, is that if you have a question in the first few minutes. Yet the question time is an hour into the event. You may have lost it, but you can just keep chucking questions down there. In fact, you can add more questions. You can go back and ask another and another and another and another. Sound good? And also, we'll have mic runners up these stairs and up these stairs as well. If you'd like to do the old conventional method of raising your hand.
So that's in the second half. But for the first half, we've got the panel here to talk about their, their specialist areas. And could you all please welcome them as they come up on the stage. Thank you very much. So first of all, the very handsome man on my left, I'd like to introduce <laughs> Mr. Darren Pitt here. Now Darren's the principal of Springfield Anglican College. He's had 24 years experience in both England and Australia and he's worked in seven different schools as a head of faculty, a head of year, head of senior school, head of department, director of student learning, deputy principal and now principal. He's a bachelor's degree in literature, master's in educational leadership, postgrad study in positive, uh, positive psychology, theology and management. He's also a Tottenham supporter right here and he loves coaching soccer. So those football people from the World Cup, ask any questions as well. Next we have Miss Elizabeth Ward. Now it's what I wanted to get a whole scheme of people. So we've got Darren who's had years and years experience but I think it'll be just as valuable to hear from Elizabeth. Elizabeth graduated in 2015 from the University of Queensland with a Bachelor of Arts Education and in that short time she already has a permanent position at Brisbane Boys College. So one of the top GPS schools in Brisbane and she teaches English and Geography. So could I get a hands up who's secondary in this room? Big. Right. So Elizabeth, you go with that, with all your questions and your queries. Next we've got Mr. Scott Harding. Scott has 21 years experience working across both public, private and independent schools in the UK and in Australia. So maybe ask him questions about the difference between public schools and private schools. Um, Scott has taught French and English, there you go, jack of all trades, in BBC uh, and TSAC currently and is an expert in pastoral education. Next we've got um, Suzanne Timone. Now hands up early childhood in this room. There we go. Suzanne's the Teacher Professional Learning Program Manager for Good Start Early Learning Centres, which basically means she's responsible for the induction, mentoring and professional learning programs for early childhood teachers in Queensland. She's worked with QTs, the facilitator of mentoring beginning teachers project, started her career as a kindergarten teacher and as an advisory teacher for the Department of Education and Training and has recently completed her PhD investigating prep teachers' conceptions of their approaches to student behaviour. And at the end we've got Mrs Amanda Hawkswell who's had 30 years experience working in schools and is currently the principal of Sherwood State School. So can I get hands up primary students here? Wow. There you go. No, no pressure. No pressure. No pressure. <laughs> Began her uh, career in Mackay but has worked in many schools ranging in different socio-economic and cultural backgrounds. Her passions are ensuring that her students are lifelong learners, supporting her staff members and creating unified learning communities. Now Chris is going to give the panel microphone. Uh, Darren is starting first. Is that all good to go? Now Darren, your specialist area that you elected to talk about is school culture. And I think that's really important because as graduates we're expected to just go and fling ourselves into a school next year not really knowing the culture of the school or what the school's particularly like. It's quite different from Prac. I'm assuming to actually being a teacher. Now TSAC's quite a new school relatively and you're a big one for creating school culture. What do you think is the importance of finding the right school for you as a graduate? 
Thanks, Liam, and um, thanks for the invitation to be here. Hello, everybody. So, uh, great question. Uh, I asked to speak about culture because um, I, you heard my CV in short. I've been uh, in my deputy head roles, head roles, director of teaching and learning roles, etc. I've been essentially sitting on selection committees and been responsible for recruitment of teachers probably for about eight or nine years now. Uh, in the car over here, I guessed that probably meant the appointment of a hundred or so people, which means interviewing probably four or five hundred people. So I feel like I'm quite well placed to comment on the recruitment process in, under the frame of um, employability. And, um, and I think culture is the key thing. Uh, there are certainly a number of different aspects to getting a job. But I think that one of the things that's really crucial is that you understand the school you're applying to and that, importantly, you only apply to schools that you feel like you could fit in. So it's possible for you to apply for a job in a culture that you don't understand or don't agree with, but that is a recipe for disaster. If you get to the school and you your passions are not the school's passions. You are not going to fit. You're going to feel like you don't fit. And it's not going to be a happy experience. Now, I ought to just frame all of my comments by saying that um, I moved to Australia in 2005, and I've been working in independent schools since I arrived. So my comments are very much about independent schooling. I can't speak with any authority about government schooling, so apologies about that. But from an independent schooling point of view, the culture of the school is really transparent if you go looking for it, and I would really strongly suggest some of the best advice I could give you is that you become familiar with the culture of the school you're applying to. Now, all independent schools will say the same thing, and that is that they advocate for a broad education. Of course they do. They advocate for the benefits of a good, robust academic curriculum, the importance of extracurricular sport and creative arts and outdoor education and leadership uh, opportunities, etc., etc. All of those things are true. But if you dig a little deeper in the language of the school from the website and other marketing materials or speak to people who you know who might work there, you will start to understand a little more about what they're aiming to achieve. So, if you go to uh, my school website, which is the one that I'm able to speak about with the most authority, you will find that we're very, very passionate about student care, which is the phrase we use for pastoral care or well-being, and we're very passionate about academic advancement and ensuring that students get learning opportunities that are suitable to their needs. And so if you were to come to an interview at my school, you would need to understand that culture. You would need to come prepared to talk my language. You would need to understand the things that I and my staff are saying in public places so that when I meet with you, you stand out from those people that haven't done that. And believe me, most people don't. In my experience with the four or five hundred interviews that I have conducted, most people don't know and understand the school they're applying to. They haven't taken the time to research it. And that's a crying shame. And I'll tell you that a recruiting panel, a good recruiting panel, can smell that a mile off. It becomes evident in the first few minutes when you ask questions. The first question, I'll give you a heads up, the first question is nearly always going to be a question along the lines of, why did you apply for this job? And what we are asking you to reveal in your answer is that you share our passions. Now, of the 
I'm using these numbers, they're not, you know, they're not very uh, accurate necessarily, but of the, say, 400 people that I've interviewed who didn't get the job, I reckon probably 30 or 40 of them have answered the question, why did you apply for this job, with an answer like, because it's close to home, or because I need a job, and the, essentially the interview's over at that point. Okay, I, I'm not really paying attention anymore, and that might sound a little harsh, but that is because I want the answer to be, I share your passions. Because I want employees that share my passions are going to help me take the school in the direction that I want it to go in. So that might sound a little unfair to be dismissed that early in an interview, but just trust me that a busy recruiting panel who have probably, this is a practical consideration for you, in a busy recruiting panel that have probably already spent eight to ten hours reading applications and are probably spending a whole day in interviews, by the time they come to you, are being pretty decisive. And if you say something like, it's because it's near to home, you're out. So let's flip that over and be positive. What I'm saying is, if you apply to a school, have a really good look at the language they use and ensure that you share those passions and that you communicate that early on. Okay? I'm not asking you to mimic my website. I don't want you to read it to me. I don't want you to have memorized it. But I want to get a sense that you agree with me about what I think schooling is. All right, thank you, Darren, for that. And that would be good to ask something along those lines in terms of what leaders of schools look for in job interviews. So just to remind you, you can ask questions during the entirety of this symposium online on that link that I sent you. So keep finding those and we might be able to ask something, Darren, further along those lines at the second half of this symposium. But next we've got Miss Elizabeth Ward. Now Liz, you've finished your degree in 2015 already you're at Brisbane Boys College. We've had a lot of um, speakers in, in today, in the last day, that say that you know, a really great way to get a job straight out of university is to go rural. But you've stayed basically in Brisbane and now you're, you've got a permanent position at BBC. So your specialist area, I think, is setting yourself apart. Because when we graduate, sure we've got a Bachelor of Ed, but literally so does everyone else in this entire room. And if that's your be-all and end-all, well, we've got 300, 400 people that has that exact same resume. So it's quite important to set yourself apart and have X factor. Now, you've succeeded quite early in your career. How have you managed to do that, and how have you managed to set yourself apart? It was really interesting actually reflecting on this because I haven't thought about my first interview at BBC for a long time. So I was interviewed there in 2015, and I started my contract in term two of 2016. And I think the most important thing in hindsight is to actually set yourself up well during your prac. It is never too early. You need to be basically performing at your highest level all the time because you don't know who's watching. You don't know who knows who within other schools. So a lot of it does come down to networking and being very involved in the school community you're at. My prac was at Bundamba State Secondary College in Ipswich. I was there for all up probably a year. I did all of my prac there. 
And during that time, I took a lot of time to actually go out and find a support network. Whilst my prac teachers were great, I found a support network of other teachers who had taught at different schools. I really took time to go into their classes as well and observe and have a look at their different pedagogies, what worked, what didn't, and also had a chat to them about their experiences at other schools and what other schools are looking for. Uh, so I was very lucky when the opportunity did come up at Brisbane Boys College. I was actually referred by a teacher who was not my prac teacher at Bundamba and went in for the interview and it was a very positive experience overall. And just as you were saying, it's incredibly important to actually have an understanding of the school's ethos and be able to kind of make yourself a part of their community as well. So understanding the school's mission statement is particularly important. I'm very glad you said that. And letting, the, and letting the interviewers know as well how you're going to contribute to their community and also how you've been contributing to the community while you're on PRAC. So if any opportunity comes up at all, whether it's to supervise NAPLAN, whether it's to go to a sporting event with the kids on the weekend or something like that, absolutely anything, you need to be doing it because you just don't know who's there or who you'll be able to talk to. I know that, not particularly in education, but I was trying to get job after job after job being a barista and I just couldn't get anything, not even at McCafe or anything like that. Yet the only way I got a job was a friend, a friend of a friend. So I think networking like you bring up Elizabeth is so important, especially in an educational sense. Now if you're at Prac and you're in a staff room and you want to be a bit of a wallflower and you don't want to network, what steps do you think a young Pracky can take to building those relationships within a staff room? Well, that's a good question. Um, thinking back to when I was on PRAC, what I'd do is actually um, just maybe talk to somebody outside of the staff room. If you're too nervous to talk in the staff room, don't. Perhaps just catch a teacher after class or something like that. Comment on something you liked about that lesson and then usually they'll be happy to keep talking to you about it. Or another way that's really um, useful is ask them for a resource they use during a lesson. Tell them how much you liked it. Ask them if perhaps they can help you utilise that in one of your lessons. Fantastic advice. So if you want to ask Elizabeth about setting yourself apart or things that you can do above and beyond just our course, that'd be a fantastic question to ask. Now, Scott, you, like I said in your introduction, you've been a jack of all trades. You've worked in public, private, independent in the UK and Australia. Um, so I'm pretty certain you've had your fair share of job interviews and that you've had your fair share of making resumes and CVs. So your specialist area is actually nailing the interview once you get your foot in the door. Now, Dan touched on it, but what would be good to t keep in mind when these graduates go out, and myself as well, and we finally get our foot in the door and we manage to scrape an interview out of a school, what things can we do to prepare ourselves best for that situation? Well, firstly, good afternoon, everybody. Um, one thing that I think is really, really important for you to understand, and I'd just like to reiterate what Darren said in his section, which is you have to do your research. That's the first thing. Before you even go into the interview, you've got to have done your research. I'll, I'll, I'm going to wind it back, actually. I'll start with CVs, if that's all right. Yes. Um, the traditional paper CV is still very relevant, but obviously we're looking at the stage now where we're talking about CVs going online. We're talking about um, practicalities that you can actually demonstrate being linked to a CV. So there's nothing wrong with having an e-portfolio that links to a CV. If you wish to put that in, that's a, a good modern way to actually get attention from an employer. LinkedIn. And remember, of course, the idea of not only including, I suppose, if you will, relevant information for a school, but also your interests. Put some personality in your CV. You've got to be able to stand out when there's 150, 200 applicants for a job. You have to stand out. 
Okay, so that's got to be something that's very, very important for you to understand. Um, it is a competitive you know, environment, of course. That's nothing to be frightened of because you could be the one person that actually makes the difference. All right, so the numbers, you could be up against two people, you could be up against 200, are actually fairly irrelevant. It's about whether or not you embrace the chance to make yourself um, someone unique, someone with the personality that actually could fit the school and then secures that interview. All right, so the ePortfolio idea is a good one because if you include a link on your CV, it does allow the employer to go and look at you, perhaps, demonstrating a lesson or your, I suppose, your assessment report from your mentor teacher or other things that you choose to include that show your philosophy um, of teaching in active practice. There's one thing saying, there's another thing doing and showing. Um, and I think that's a very, very important thing for you to understand in this, in this sort of modern environment, this day and age, is that that's something that we look for. We look for the edge, you know, in schools. We look for people who are going to come into the, the, the profession and carry it forward because we're not going to be here forever. We, we've got another 15, 20 years perhaps. You might be on a yacht by then, Darren. Who knows? Um, I won't be. But, um, but the fact of the matter is, you're the future. All right? You are going to be in this position, perhaps not in this position, but you're going to be in these positions where you can influence the future generations of Australia, and it's a big responsibility. So you've got to really look in yourself and go, one, am I applying to the school for the right reasons? Okay, what do I believe in? Two, what can I demonstrate? That's the first thing you've got to think about. Okay, even before you go into the interview, all right, before you secure an interview, what are you looking to achieve for yourself? Because you've got to be happy. Look at the dropout rate in the first five years of teaching. Okay, and that's because people aren't aligning themselves to the right job or they're not going to teaching for the right reasons. What are you going to teaching for and are you aligning yourself to the right environment? These are powerful questions you've got to consider. All right? Now, when you actually get the interview itself, that's another thing altogether. You've gone in there, hopefully by then you've listened to Darren, um, a serving principal of, of renown, and you've done your research. You know what you're going to do. You know, you know what you can offer. You know what you can, you can try to, I suppose, if you will, create a niche for, for yourself in the school with. The questions themselves are really designed to open up the interview. They're not designed to shut you down as an answer. So if the first question is, what can you bring to the school? Or why have you come and applied to this school? Be honest. Because you shouldn't be sitting in that position and saying, it's because I need a job. Or it's close to home. You shouldn't be in that position. If you've done the research, that is a natural conversation that flows from that point onwards. Okay? And don't be afraid because you're a new teacher coming in and not knowing a skill. I remember going for a job at Brisbane Boys College where um, Elizabeth went. I was, that was 2003. I was asked a question about a framework for learning called Dimensions of Learning. Anyone heard of Dimensions of Learning here? Have you heard of it? Yeah, a few of you? Good. <laughs> Fantastic. I hadn't, right? I hadn't heard of it at all. But I was just honest in the interview. And I said, look, I don't know about it, but I'm willing to learn. All right? And bear in mind, that's what you are. You are raw potential going into a career. People aren't expecting the finished article. They're expecting you to be, one, somebody who wishes to learn, and two, somebody who wishes to contribute. All right? Show that. Use opportunities in the interview to show that. Okay? And of course, you're going to get to talk about your, your um, I suppose, your ambitions, if you will, and you're going to be talking about your skill set and, and things you like to do in your leisure time. These are things that can come up in an interview, but that's going to be coming from your CV. Your employer, potentially, your potential employer is going to be looking at your CV and thinking of questions they can ask you that are tailored specifically to what you've shown them. Now, that could be from your e-portfolio. It could be from other areas. But you are in a unique position of having their full attention. Don't do anything to shut it off. Okay? Imagine it's a first date, if you will. All right? Don't do anything to shut that attention off. If you want a second date, all right? Don't shut that attention off. 
because it's really, really important for you to understand that you have a limited window of time to keep their attention. And at the very end of the interview, if you're asked, do you have any questions for us? Ask the questions. Don't sit there and say, I have no questions. You should be curious about the environment you could be spending many years working in. All right? That's a really, really important thing for you to understand. Be curious. If you've done your research, you were curious enough to apply for the job, you should be curious enough to ask further questions. It could be based on the questions you've been asked. It could be based on a burning question that wasn't addressed in the interview. But ask the question. Be memorable. Okay? Thank you. Fantastic advice there from Scott. So if you want to ask something about job interviews or something to set your resume apart, just a reminder that you can ask questions through the entirety of this. And if you missed it, that's the link right there that you need to go to. It's quite simple. We've got lots of questions already. 87 questions already. There you go. So keep firing them in. That'll be the filter. So some great job interview and dating advice from Scott Hardy. <laughs> but maybe don't ask him about that. Um, Suzanne, hands up again, um, early childhood, be proud, be loud, be proud, here we go. So Suzanne, your specialist area that you elected is to basically talk about the mindsets that these graduates need to keep in. It can be, even I'm feeling a bit stressed, I've got the rest of my assignments to do, I've got prep, I've got my internship, hopefully I can get a job next year, I've got my portfolio shenanigans. I've got all these type of things to buzzing about in my head, and then you add on job interviews, resume, finding a school, whether I'm going to be sent off to Mount Isa, or whether I can stay in Brisbane, what that means for my family, relationships. It can be quite hard to keep a positive growth mindset in that period. So how do students stay the most productive when they leave university and stay positive, particularly in this transitionary period of their lives? Thanks, Liam. Um, and can I say welcome to all the early childhood teachers and all the teachers in the room and um, congratulate you on choosing a wonderful profession. Uh, it's one that's immensely challenging but immensely rewarding as well. Um, growth mindset is incredibly important. I think I've worked with both pre-service teachers as an academic but also now working with early career teachers. Um, and growth mindset and resilience are two of the things that we talk a lot with our early career teachers. Um, and this relates also to you going into your final um, placement as well. Uh, the first thing that we always instill in our early career teachers is that be a learner. Um, as I think you said, is they're not a finished, you, you know, we're not expecting you to be a finished product. We're expecting you to be a great learner. Um, mistakes are going to be inevitable in teaching and we actually ask you to embrace making mistakes because that's where the big learning happens. Uh, so feel comfortable feeling uncomfortable would be my message. Um, with that we say be solution focused as well and be open-minded and flexible and reflective. Um, we certainly know with our early career teachers, and I can think back to myself being a beginning teacher, there are some, um, some areas of our teaching that we come out and really feel like we're not prepared. Behaviour is one of those, which is why I ended up doing some additional study. Um, and working with families is something that is often foreign to us as well, and I know I had um, a pretty steep learning curve um, to learn how to interact with families successfully. So with that in mind, I'd say, you know, um, find a mentor 
Um, when you become an early career teacher, you'll be matched up in your schools with a formal mentor, but find an informal mentor and lean on them for support and for advice and guidance through those tricky parts. Um, I would say also take risks. That's really important in your teaching. Um, step outside that comfort zone. Um, I was reflecting back when I was thinking about this question, um, M. Scott Peck, who said, ships are safe in the harbour, but that's not what they're built for. Um, for us to be great teachers, we need to take risks. And sometimes that's really hard when we're a novice and we feel like, you know, I actually want to look like I know what I'm doing. But taking a risk sometimes, even if it goes wrong, if you can reflect on that, think about, okay, well, what could I do so that it could, uh, I could improve upon that? Mistakes are not a problem at all. Um, regarding resilience, relationships are really important um, to our new teachers. I always say breathe um, and develop those relationships. The relationships you have with children and families and setting those up are fundamental and they help your well-being in the classroom as well. Um, we know through research as well that it's really important that you nurture the relationships while you're on prac and as an early career teacher in your personal life as well. So surround yourself with really good people um, and lean on them as well. Uh, Work-life balance is, is really important. We know that that's a huge problem for our teachers, particularly around attrition. So you'll need to learn how to prioritise because there's lots of things you'll want to do. You'll want to do everything, in fact, particularly if you're on contract and you're wanting to secure that next contract. Don't try and do everything. Be very strategic about what you do do. Um, I say to our early career teachers, leave your laptops in your centre. Close them, leave them, go home. I know that's a hard thing to do because you always have so much that you want to do, but it is really important for your mental well-being that you are able to switch off, go home and enjoy um, those family relationships that you have. Um, finally, I'd say uh, celebrate your successes because there will be many and sometimes we tend to gloss over those, but really celebrate them. Make sure on a Friday night at the end of the week Go out and have some drinks with your fellow teachers or your friends and celebrate. Yay, I got through another week. I certainly do that. I still do that in my job. <laughs> um, but at the same time, where you know that you have challenges um, and you're really not feeling confident, be honest about that. Ask for support. Um, and really target your professional learning to those needs. So really think specifically about what it is, what are the things that you need development with skills and knowledge in, and go out and find that, um, because that will help you along the way. That was certainly, as a beginning teacher, behaviour uh, and children's behaviour, challenging behaviour was an area I felt totally unprepared and I really struggled. I thought these children were just going to do everything I told them to do, and it was a huge shock when they didn't. So. I just decided to keep studying until I knew, and I've only just recently finished my PhD after doing a Masters of Guidance Counselling as well. So that for me, something that was a skill deficit in me, has now become a strength. And I would encourage you to think about how you can flip um, those weaknesses that you may feel that you have into a strength. Some very Thanks, wise Liam. words there from Suzanne. Our last speaker's um, this is Amanda Hawkswell, who's the principal of Sherwood State School. So hands up, um, primary. There you go. You, do ha you have a, an audience, that's what I'll say. <laughs> Your specialty area is when we finally get the job, it feels like a big camel's hump. And there's all this 
momentum that we're working on and we finally get the job and we go, oh, I've had units and conferences about how to get here, but what do I do finally once I get here? And putting your best foot forward in year one. And a lot of that is what you said, fitting into your school community as well and to be able to have a good community for learning. So what advice would you give to a, a student who's made an impact has put their best foot forward, got a job interview, kept the mindset, but now they're in it. What things can they do in year one from a leader that you would like to see from a year one teacher? Okay, so thank you, Liam, for inviting me. My first thing that I wanted to, t to touch on was that education has obviously changed greatly. When I came out of university, I was given a permanent position, as were most of the people that I studied with. So we came out to a permanent position. You find yourselves in um, that grey area where you're often put on a contract. And so you have to have a different mindset when you go into the school because you're wanting to impress uh, the staff there so that your contract will be extended. So it, it's a little... Um, I guess it's a little different, a different mindset to think about there. When I was reflecting on what I was going to say today, I had to think about my first year and I thought, oh my goodness, now I think back. I had a smile, but it was, it was a tricky year. And it kind of went by in a blur. And I think you'll find that your first year goes by in a blur. And I remember it was a blur of education jargon where people around you used acronyms, used education speak, and you'd be sitting in staff meetings thinking, I don't even know what those letters mean, let alone where to find it or who to go to, to, to help me with that. So I guess leading on from what the rest of the panel said, that's probably the most important thing. And I think, especially in primary school, I can't speak for the high school cohort, but in primary school these days, we know that research says that working in a team is the best approach, the, the approach that will help you get longevity of career. Because obviously if we're working in a team, we can manage the workload a little better. We can help each other. Now, you're going to come into a school and find that some of the members of your team, when you go into them, maybe of, of my gender, um, of my ilk, and you might think, what on earth could I contribute? That person, that experienced person, won't want to hear what I have to say. They won't want anything from me. That's where you're wrong. You need to go in there thinking, I have a lot to offer, I have a lot to share, I just have to be brave enough to do that. Because most people, even the most experienced teachers, all they want to do is be a learner as well. So we're, every, every day I learn something new. And I get the most pleasure from going and watching Prax students, in fact, because it, it helps me renew and it also allows us the privilege of saying, oh, that's right, I'd forgotten that I even do that. Because when, when you become uh, an experienced teacher, often it becomes quite automated. You, you do that behaviour management strategy without thinking about it. So when you have a, a new teacher to your uh, team or you have a Prax teacher as an experienced teacher, it's it is quite good to reflect and it, and it all also makes you feel quite proud. You think, that's right, I do do those things. Or sometimes I think, oh, I forgot that I could do that. I might bring that back into my practice. So your value add adding to your team, just remember that. The other thing that I said is that um, you need to remember that as part of a team, you have to be able to contribute. So be collaborative. Don't 
let your fear of getting things wrong or not knowing things uh, inhibit you from collaborating with others because they know that you don't know everything. When you come to a job interview with me, I know that you don't know everything. As we said, we want you to be somebody who is willing to contribute. We want you to be somebody who wants to learn. And for me, I want you to be somebody who really wants to build a relationship with every student in your class, because that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for somebody who really wants to connect with those children, because that's what they need. So if you can show us that, and then you can show your team that, your team will be willing to bring you along the journey with them. They would be more than happy to learn from you. And what, what I've found in um, the workplace that I'm in is we, as a leadership team, look at connecting people who will make really great teams because we know that that will lessen the workload. We know that it will uh, increase the output and we know that it will increase the engagement of students. So be one of those people. Also connect with the community. So if you're, and you're about to go on PRAC, when you're on PRAC, do those things. If there's a disco or there's a fete or there's a community uh, event, be part of it. Even if it's not the year level that you're on, offer to go there and be on a stall or take the money at the gate of the disco. Get out there and dance at the disco. The children aren't going to care that you dance like Elaine from Friends. They're not going to care. They're just going to care that you're there. <coughs> um, so then I put down my, my top five. So I said my top five tips, <coughs> and I'm going to read them. I also said ask for a mentor. Um, they'll link you with somebody. Go to your principal or your DP. I said don't be afraid to contribute. Ask for a KLA role. Get involved in school life, so students will love to see you at any of those events. Ask admin for help before you break. So don't sit there and allow the pieces to fall apart. Ask for help. Because that really is our job, is to help. And I said, be organised, that's the key. But also be kind to yourself. Sleep lots when you can. Use the holidays to refresh and rejoin the real world and believe in yourself, because you can do it. And people just want to help you with that. So that's my comments. Fantastic advice. So can you just give a hand for all the panellists? So I've put up on the board again the panellists, their names and who they are. Um, now for the second half of this symposium, I want you guys to really engage, because I think this would probably be the last time we're in a room like this together. Oh, For the rest of our entire course, this is it. And I know, like, I was in the audience for day one and for day two. You kind of feel a bit weird. You kind of get a bit shy and kind of a bit awkward. But this is the last time. And we're not pushing an agenda. I'm one of you. I'm literally one of you. It's one of those, I just want to cover those little things that are causing you a bit of stress and actually help you out. I'm not trying to sell you anything. It's literally, I've got a panel of experts here. Those little things rattling around your mind, get rid of them. And just even if you feel it's a dumb question or it's been answered a million times, like I was still confused about what a portfolio was yesterday. So don't feel embarrassed and don't feel shy about asking a question. So we have Courtney, where have you gone? Behind me. <laughs> Courtney will be 
um, up and down this staircase if you'd like to physically ask a question and show your face and network with some of these experts on the panel. And Jamie, hands up Jamie, there will be on the left. So find your runner and attract some attention and we'll just jump between the two. Um, so if you'd like to ask a question, if you'd like to go up the stairs now and just try and find someone, get their attention. In the meantime, we have 121 questions online. Oh, wow. So, so hands up, hands up if you want to ask a question first. Come on Jamie's side, you can ask a question. <laughs> Jamie can come around the front here as well. But first off, I'll ask some questions that we've been getting on our link. I might put the link up again if you've missed it. There it is. So if you've got a question you'd like to ask, go to that link. It's very simple form, easy as. The first one is about moving around, basically. I think it'd be interesting to see the percentage of us next year that get to stay in Brisbane. Some of us will go rural, some of us will even go overseas. So an interesting question that I got online was for Darren and Scott. You've come from the UK, both of you, and you've moved, I'm sure you've moved family, country, and you're dealing with completely different curriculum. So an interesting question is, how, what steps do we go to move country in terms of still being a teacher overseas and the changes and the challenges that you faced when going abroad in terms of teaching. Scott, if you'd like to start, and then we'll go on to Darren. Well, I moved here in uh, 2003. Uh, my wife's from Brisbane, so obviously we were always going to come here. Ironically, I'm one of the few English people, I think, who never wants to come to Australia. So we actually had a massive domestic row about it. I was happy to stay in England, and um, then one day I just tried to change my mind. I'm a bit like that. And um, now I, I got to the stage in my first job. I've been in my, my state school my, where I started for six years. And I got to the stage where I felt I was starting to repeat myself. So on a serious note, we decided to emigrate. And I didn't come over with a real roadmap about whether I was going to go to state or private. And um, I went to the Brisbane uh, Conference Centre, uh, the Convention Centre, and there was a, a, a private schools expo on. And I just happened to spam Brisbane Boys College with my CV and I got lucky. Basically, that's literally what happened. Um, in terms of the systems, the, the two different systems, the system we're moving towards here in Australia is ironically quite similar to the one that one I grew up in and did exams in and two that I taught um, in the state sector in England. So the idea of end of year exams which are you know, externally assessed um, and that you prepare exam technique as much as you do content. That's something that we were raised on, basically. That, um, were you A-level, Darren? Yeah, you were A-level. I was GCSE. So they're two different systems, but the same principle, which is that in the end of the year, you had an external assessment on each, um, on each subject that you basically were off school, you, you studied, you came with your exams, and that was it. Um, so that was something that we were raised in. It was something that we were, were used to teaching, um, fairly high-stakes testing. And then, obviously, I came here, and it wasn't like that. Queensland wasn't like that at all. Um, so I had to adjust. I had the reverse adjustment to make that you guys have got now, basically, where I had to go, well, suddenly we're writing our own assessments. <laughs> you know, I found that quite confronting for a little while. So it took me about six months to adapt, a good year, I think, to adapt to the Australian culture, the Australian way of, of teaching and the way of life. Um, on the PGCE, which is the English equivalent of, of your degree, you do your subject specification. So I did an English and French degree for four years. I spent a year in France. And then I came back and did a year's conversion to be a teacher. 
secondary school teacher. I, I think, Darren, you'd have done the same. Is that right? So obviously, for us, it was about our subject discipline and being experts in that, and then the teaching came secondary to that. So it was, um, it was something that, again, you learn on the job. You learn some hard practice occasionally, that uh, the method you thought would work really doesn't, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Darren, what um, experiences did you have emigrating from England to Australia? Um, you've worked your way up, and now you're principal of a school. I'm sure that didn't happen just naturally. So what steps did you go to emigrate and the challenges that you faced with that? Okay, yeah, it's a great question, actually. But uh, I guess my answer in a nutshell is I wouldn't worry about it. Um, first, of the, first of all, we came to Australia. My family came to Australia in 2005. We moved to South Australia. I lived in South Australia until the end of 2016, and I moved to Queensland in 2017. Moving from England to Australia presented some challenges with curriculum, with terminology, and things like that. And ironically, moving from South Australia to Queensland presented similar problems. But that, that's not what teaching is about. You're all smart people. You'll be able to pick up terminology. You'll be able to learn from your colleagues. I really wouldn't worry about things like that. Good teaching is about relationships. And within cultural parameters, because I'm sure that uh, I'm talking about moving from England to Australia and from South Australia to Queensland, I'm not talking about moving to some other countries where I would not have access to the first language, for example. That would be different. But within the framework of what we're describing, Scott and I are describing, it's teaching, good teaching is about relationships. If you are able to build good relationships, and those are relationships with your students and with your colleagues and with the parents, particularly if you're an independent school, but not exclusively, if you're able to build those relationships, you'll be an effective teacher in England or South Australia or Queensland because you are relying on your abilities to get the best out of other people. That's your job. It's to get the best out of the students that are in front of you. Build relationships to do that, not curriculum. All right, we'll jump to some questions from the crowd. Jamie, you had your question? Hi. Uh, thank you all for coming out. It's really cool to hear about all your experiences and sharing your testimonies with us. I have two questions. One is for Scott and Darren, and the other one is for Liam. So, right. Sorry to throw a bit of a spanner in the works, but the first one, uh, Scott and Darren. In terms of you know, key differences between, say, the Australian uh, way of doing education and, say, the English format, what would be your best advice for someone that is looking long-term to get out of the Australian system and work their way into the English system or, you know, uh, teach abroad? What's your name? My name's Luke. Okay, Luke. Great question, and I don't mean to belittle the question, but the first thing I would say is, why would you do that? <laughs> because uh, asking two people that moved from England to Australia, uh, I, I would say to you that moving to Australia and living and working here is the best thing I've ever done. So, however, um, there are lots of positives of living in England, and so I can see why you might want to do that. Look, the English system, I suppose, um, my first observation would be that the notion of independent schooling and state schooling are very different in, between Australia and the UK. So uh, I, I, was a I was a child in England. I didn't leave until I was 35. And so I worked there and I was a student there. And, um, and everybody I know went to a state school. So going to an independent school isn't really a thing in England unless you are mega rich. 
Okay. Now that's not the same here. Uh, there are lots of accessible independent school pathways for parents. Uh, obviously sacrifices need to be made, but it is accessible. And so if you go to England, you are almost certainly going to be working in a, a state school, a government-run school. And, um, and that brings with it great adventure and, and great challenge frankly. And so you would need to be, I talked a little bit about research earlier on, uh, my advice to you uh, would be to do some really hard research about the areas you are applying to work because I, uh, I always like to be positive but I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going to lie and I'm going to say that some of the places that I worked in England were not easy. Okay. Thank you very much. All right. I'd um, second what Darren said. I actually went to an independent school um, on a scholarship, so I was very lucky. But the honest truth is, is it little, who's, who's a big Harry Potter fan here? Harry Potter? Muggles, non-muggles? Yeah? Yeah, I got a bit of that going on when I went to independent school, because I came from a normal background, basically. I got lucky. Um, what Darren said is absolutely correct. There's a massive, massive... I mean, it's big here as, as, a, as a difference, but it's huge. If you go to the UK, it's, it's like Ivy League. It's completely and utterly different. Okay? 99.9% .9 of us will teach in state schools in England. All right? And there's some magnificent state schools in England. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of privatisation of um, education in England too. So you look up the idea of academy schools, um, which are privately run, basically, by business. So they have a certain ethos, again, that you would really need to research before you applied there. Um, so, you know, the idea of free schooling is something that's become huge in England now. So there's a lot more diversification of education in a country like England. Um, and you've probably seen that with like Finland and other countries as well. But be very, very aware, if you are going to go overseas, that education systems are not the same as here. You need to do your research, I'd say even more carefully if you're going to do that. And it's a fantastic experience, don't get me wrong. What we said about emigrating to Australia was true for us, but the reverse is also true for some of you out here. You'll go to another country and you'll love it. You may well settle down there forever, but you do need to do your research. Thank you very much. Um, second question is for Liam. I think it's great that we've got all these panellists here, but we haven't actually heard much from you. So I was hoping that maybe you'd be able to tell us what, is, what are some of the key things that you've learned from the five awesome panellists that we've got here and how are you trying to, uh, I guess, uh, let that inform your future? Well, first of all, the, the reason I'm speaking least is because I thought I was the least qualified person on the panel. <laughs> so it would be funny to bring in all these specialists and then I talk for two hours <laughs> and they go, oh, okay. Um, basically what I've learned the most is the power of networking and the power of the people you know. Um, it comes up so often when you talk to people about how they got their first opportunities. It's always through a friend of a friend. Or, oh, like in Elizabeth's case, oh, I knew this this um, man in the staff room and he used to work at BBC so when a job came up he suggested me and blah, blah, blah. you get those funny sort of coincidences that come along and to me I'm quite a shy person I'm quite introverted um, I think I know about two of you <laughs> um, so to me it comes quite unnaturally to go into prac and then suddenly be Mr. Cool Guy and be hey uh, and like kind of start being everyone's best mate but there is an art to it and it's always about putting yourself out there because I'm kind of a bit hesitant in believing in introversion and extroversion it's, it's almost like a skill um, so that's probably what I would, uh, what would be my answer to your question um, for the rest of this we've got 
137 questions now. <laughs> so what I'm thinking is we'll, uh, the panelists will limit our answers to about a minute, yeah. and then we'll just try shotgun as many as we can so people can get the most out of this. Um, Jamie, if you want to look for another question, and Courtney, you had a question up the back. No, no more? Answered. Okay, so this one's to Elizabeth from our online questionnaire. Um, we've heard a lot about to get a job, we almost have to get into the rural system, and if we want any sort of permanency, that's basically what we have to do. And if we want the so-called great schools in Brisbane, that you're either not going to get a look in, or you're going to get just substitute teaching, or you're going to get some real minuscule contract or something like that. Yet you've kind of gone the other way. You're in your first few years of teaching, yet you already have a permanent position at Brisbane Boys College. So the question here was, what advice, best advice you would give to some people here that want a permanent position in a really quote-unquote high-end school in Brisbane? That's a really good question. Um, you need to make yourself very, very valuable to that community. You need to make it so that they need you to stay on. So my experience was my first job was a three-term contract at BBC. Um, I was taking over for a man who was on long service leave. So when he was coming back, obviously, I wouldn't have a job anymore. However, a position opened up in the English department, and they found out I had an English degree and asked me if I would like to stay on and teach English and do a little bit of geography as well. But when I went in to have another interview for my permanent job, I spoke about what I had been doing with regards to coaching for basketball or helping out with a Amnesty International Club or the relationships that I'd established in the community. So I had worked really hard and had honestly enjoyed just becoming a part of the GPS community as a whole and of BBC. So at the end of the day, they genuinely wanted to have me to stay on and kind of created a position for me. Mm -hmm. yeah. Fantastic. So hands up if we want to ask a question on this side, Courtney, and on that side, anyone? Don't be shy. Anyone down here? Yeah, Jamie, there's another person down here. Keep your hand raised. In the meantime, while we get those questions, uh, the mic to those people, um, I will ask Amanda this question. Amanda, we've heard a lot about the portfolio of teachers and how we almost have to have all our PRAC reports and evidence that we've gone to the standards in our past practical experiences. As a leader of a school, in an interview, are you expecting to see something like that? And if so, what type of portfolio would you like to see? Um, not that I need a microphone. <laughs> um, so yes, primary teachers, I definitely require a portfolio. And I tell the pre-service teachers in my school, it, has, it serves two purposes. One is, I make an analogy, if you're a Gigi Hadid, a, a model, you wouldn't turn up to Calvin Klein just in your tracky dacks with no makeup on, expect that Calvin Klein are going to employ you if they don't know your track record. So if you turn up to my school and you're telling me that you're a really good teacher, I'm not going to employ you unless I can see some track record. So I'm, I'm looking for your track reports and I'm looking for you to have assembled some of the things that you think are the best things that you've engaged with over those four years of PRAC. So you might, um, and I, I tend to say don't do the whole standards, don't break your portfolio up into the whole standards, but people have differing views on that. Mine is break it up into a, a, a three 
um, sectors. So it might be teaching and learning, it might be behaviour management, it might be community engagement. Break it up simply so that you can use it. It can be a user-friendly document for you. Because the second fold why I believe a, a portfolio is really critical for you in an interview because interviews are terrifying and if you have a portfolio in front of you, you can put it in front of me and you've distracted me from looking at you and I'm looking at your work and then you don't feel like you're going to choke on your own spit. <laughs> so you can get through the interview. So it, it serves two purposes. The other one is I often, if I think it's a great folio, I keep it, read through it, I get more of a feel for who you are by what you've put in your folio. So then it will, if, if there's two students that I might be looking at employing, that could be the thing that, that you know, separates you. So definitely, I would say put time into your folio. Don't leave it. You know, if it interviews Monday, don't whip it up on a Sunday because you can't. Uh, I say four to six weeks of playing time to get your folio right. So gather any of your data, think about how it's going to be laid out. Look, whether it's coloured or not coloured, whether it's A3, A4, it's probably not a big deal. But you, want, you don't want me to be able to have to have a magnifying glass to read what's on the page. You want it to be user-friendly and you want it to be relevant with what the questions might um, need to have information added to. So you need to know it because if I ask you a question about reading, say, primary teachers, if I ask you a question about reading, you need to go to somewhere where you can then reflect on the information that you've got there. So you don't want to be flicking through the pages, you want to really know it. And I always say, before you come to an interview, practice with somebody. Like, practice using your folio. If you're going to put that much time into a folio, practice using it. Um, Darren, quickly, 10 seconds. Is that the same for secondary? Uh, no. Not really. Uh, yes and no. My advice would be know yourself and know what your strengths are. If you feel like you're the type of person who is not going to be at your best in an interview, that you don't feel like you can shine when you're under the spotlight being questioned, then by all means bring some supporting materials to help your case. If you feel like you are a person who is um, able to be at your best in those circumstances, then it's not necessary. I have employed lots of people who have shown me their portfolios and I've enjoyed them enormously, but I've also employed lots of people who have brought their portfolios and I've not needed to look at them because the answers they have provided, the questions I've asked, the answers they've provided, have been enough to dig down into their understanding and to reveal it to me. Fantastic. We've got some physical questions. Courtney, where are you? Yes. Hi, my name is Veronica Treasure. Thank you for taking my question. Um, my question is, what's the best way to apply for a job while valuing an administration's team's time, and how do I make myself stand out? Um, I think um, Darren might be good for so what primary, primary. primary Amanda. Would you like to ask this? Um, okay, so I was telling the panel I've already had some uh, students who've sent me. So they're graduating in December. They've already sent me their CV, their their um, final prac report or their third year prac report. Um, so I guess they're trying to get a foot in the door easily. For primary, it's, I guess it's a little different to secondary. What I would say to you is the prac school that you're going on now is probably your most critical prac school. And if you make yourself part of that community, and, and, and I don't mean you have to do anything flashy or showy, but you really be 
get in there and become part of that community. And then when you're finished prac, even though you're going to be exhausted and just want to go and hibernate for a couple of weeks, if you offer to go back and give a volunteer day or go back to your class teacher and work in that school, you're the one who's going to be employed. Because I, I can speak from, from my experience, I've probably employed 70% of the prackies that I have in fourth year. They're, they're the ones that I'm looking to secure. Because they, they've proven their, their skill set. They've proven that they can be part of that team. So if you do a really good job when you're on that fourth, that fourth year prac and internship, and then you perhaps endear yourself by coming back to graduation or the you know, sports day or whatever it is, go and help in your, your teacher's classroom one day a week if you've got the time to do that, that's where you'll get noticed. It's not about sending CVs out to people because other people have people in their school too. This question's for um, Suzanne Simone. Uh, you mentioned um, upskilling and teachers being able to upskill themselves and, and how you upskilled yourself recently. What type of little things can graduates do to upskill themselves to make sure they don't just have the best thing about them is a Bachelor of Ed? What type of little things do you think a, a, a graduate teacher could upskill and make themselves a bit more special? I think it's first of all uh, finding where your passion is in teaching. Um, and I guess, you know, for me that came quite early, but it came because I wasn't confident in an my practice. Um, but before I even began studying, um, I would do things like take short courses or, um, you know, if there was any behaviour specialist that came through, I was first of all teaching in Mackay when I first started. If a specialist came through, I would go to any professional development opportunity and just soak it up. Um, I even um, did a lot of reading, so um, and, and I certainly advocate for that. When you become when you, you become an early career teacher, keep reading, uh, keep looking at research. I know you're thinking, oh no, not more theory, not more research, not more literature. It is really important that you stay up to date with that because it helps frame your thinking and gives you options when you think about how you're going to practice. Um, but I think. It is, those professional learning opportunities are really important and I would say if you have the opportunities to study further, do so because it opens up career opportunities for you as well. So although I started as a kindergarten teacher, um, I decided to study my Masters of School Guidance and Counselling because behaviour was an issue for me. I then taught in Redfin. So I continually challenged myself to get better and better at something that I wanted to know more about. And then I worked as an advisory visiting teacher for behaviour. And now in the position that I am, um, I work to support teachers' professional learning. So there is a career path that you can have beyond teaching if that's what you want. Uh, and while I wasn't even thinking about that as an early career teacher, certainly, um, you know, by the time I'd been teaching for five years, I was thinking about what's next. I think I'm a pretty, um, uh, I probably have ADHD, I think, actually, because I just continually get bored. <laughs> and I'm like, what's next? I need another challenge. Um, and if there's not a challenge, I'll find myself a challenge and put myself somewhere to be challenged. But that's where I think you get the most out of your career, is when you have that challenge and that you're continually growing. Um, so definitely my advice 
to you would be find what you're passionate about, where you really want to contribute, because this is a profession where we can have a huge impact. For those early childhood teachers, we know those first five years of a child's life are foundational for their development, um, and we set them up for life with their um, learning dispositions and those skills that they will take into the future. So find where you can make an impact, because I guess that's what keeps me ticking, and I think it, what keeps a lot of people in the profession is that you know you're actually making a difference. Right. And Maddie, you wanted to quickly uh, comment? I, I just wanted to clarify for the primary teachers. When you get into the um, Education Queensland system, they have a, um, a funding now called Mentoring of Beginning Teachers. So for the first couple of your years within a school, the school actually receives money to ensure that you get continued professional development. So that will be part of the process for the first couple of years. And then for all schools, I would imagine professional development, I know at my school, it's, it's a really big bucket of money. Fantastic. We've got a question over here. Jay? Hi. Uh, this question is for either Elizabeth or Scott. I was just wondering, um, teaching outside of the areas that we're trained in at uni, how do you ensure you're successful when you're asked to teach outside of your areas and how do you bring passion through for something that's completely new and you're still learning? So Elizabeth, this would be good for you because you initially started probably your special area was history and now you're kind of, oh English sorry, geography, and, you're, actually, geography, initially, yeah. and you're creeping more into other subject areas. How, like I was forced to teach geography on my prac and I've never even touched geography. So how best do you go about that out in school? So how to jump between subjects. Mm. Yet again, this comes back to having that really, really strong networking system. So try and get as many resources as you possibly can of all the other teachers who have been teaching that subject already. Um, try and familiarise yourself early on with what the assessment piece at the end of the term is going to be as well. That's very important. You do need to backward plan. So you need to make sure that in the last two weeks leading up before the exam or the assignment, you've actually taught them the right thing. So first of all, familiarise yourself with the assessment, work backwards, gather as much information as you can from the other staff members as well, and also really reinforce with the kids, express to them that you're learning too. I find that they really like that. If you go in there just pretending you know everything, that does not work, particularly with boys. So you need to let them know that you're learning as well. If we have any questions and you as a teacher aren't sure, we're going to find out together. And that's also a really good way to teach kids inquiry-based processes as well. Yep. Scott, did, have you taught outside your specialised area? When I first got to the country, I got, um, <laughs> I got a six-month contract in a, in a Catholic boys' school, independent school, for Italian. I don't speak Italian. I told them I don't speak Italian. They went, you speak French, that's close enough. I'm serious, right? So I spent six months staying a chapter ahead of them in the textbook, basically, and using video and using, you, you know, I've done Latin at school, so I had some idea, but at the same stage, that was high wire act stuff, you know what I mean? Because this was, you know, 15, 16-year-old boys, you know? So coming back to what Elizabeth was saying, you can't, you can't try and funnel these boys. You've got to tell them, listen, I'm learning. I'm learning at the same time you are. And it's the same, almost the same advice I give you about interviews. Don't try and whitewash something. Be honest. Okay, honesty is the best policy all the time, all right? And as long as you are competent and you've stayed and you're organised and you're professional, you're going to get through it and you're going to be fine. In fact, you'll probably really enjoy it. That's the honest truth. Another story when I was at school was the head of department at BBC of 
humanities, was um, a senior school, and he got a substitute, his substitute roster came up, and it said, grade one music. And he went, what? Are you having, this must be a joke. And he's like, no, I fully expect you as a senior teacher to go and cover this grade one music class. And the last time he sang nursery rhymes was probably, you know, to his kids. So he, he networked, went to the junior music teacher, and they were like, yeah, they're doing um, Puff the Magic Dragon at the moment. Um, take the textbook. And he was like, all right, kids. And I'm not sure, I'm secondary, but with early childhood, he said, they were just, it didn't matter what he did, so he got through it because they would just ring out and go, my dad's a fireman. And said, cool, awesome. <laughs> and so, but he relied on other staff members to get through in that particular situation. Um, this question comes from the online form, mainly to Amanda and Darren. Um, I know my, during my course, it's pretty much impossible to get a seven. I mean, you can, but if it's on group projects and something like that, it's pretty hard to get consistently a really high GPA. And then sometimes it just may be a bad day and suddenly you get a four, you get a bare pass and then suddenly your GPA looks horrible. When we go out and we're trying to get jobs, how much do you pay attention to our actual marks at university in terms of our grade point average? Amanda, do you want to start and then Darren uh, in, in the secondary? Um, I know as part of the form that I have to send into the Teacher Applicant Centre, I actually have to write down your GPA on that. And it's funny because someone asked me that the other day, would I take someone with a GPA of six or above over somebody with a four? No. Uh, I may do if all of the other dots connect as well. So those of you who are sitting up there going, I've got a four, GPA of four, I'm still in with a chance, you are. Um, I would take someone who can show me they can behaviour manage and are willing to contribute over somebody who has a high GPA. Darren, in the secondary context, just about 20 seconds. Uh, well, uh, just to clarify as well, my school is a as you know, is K to 12. So we, we don't, I am in, when I talk about what I'm doing, yeah. I'm also talking about employing primary teachers. Um, I would say uh, I would say also no. Uh, it doesn't really interest me hugely. Uh, firstly, I would trust the university to be passing graduates who are able to do the job. Um, I'm not going to be, when I'm looking at a, uh, a, a, a group of candidates, comparing their GPAs. It's just not anywhere near the top of my priorities list. Much more important to me is how they present themselves, the enthusiasm they convey, their passion for improving outcomes for young people. If they can speak about all of those things, I'm going to assume that the, their, uh, their academic journey has been robust and that the university have done their job. Okay. Do you have any physical questions in the audience? Big hands up. Courtney, there's one in the middle. And Jamie, is one over there. I see. It's okay. <laughs> um, I'm studying primary, and I was wondering how or if it's possible to move towards like secondary education if do I need to go back and study further, or is there any way that I can sort of make my way through there without having to go back to university? 
So anyone who can um, answer does it Does anyone really? have any no, comments about that? That's a good question. Uh, the answer is that, again, it comes back to the skills that you possess, the relationships you build. So clearly, if you're going to move from primary up to year 12, there is some content that you're going to need to demonstrate that you have, um, some understanding of the subject matter, I mean. But uh, this is something that uh, my school, which has two separate campuses, physical campuses, even though it's one school, I encourage hugely. So uh, I currently have a year seven teacher who was a year four teacher last year. Uh, we have uh, several teachers in music, drama, and other creative arts who work on both campuses. We have um, a, a PE teacher, primary PE teacher, who is coming up this semester to teach year seven and eight PE. That's because those are desires that those teachers have expressed, that they want to explore that as part of their practice. I would suggest that most schools would be happy to support it. Okay. Jamie had a question over there. And Courtney, um, there's a question over oh. here on this thing as well. Just for private or IPS schools when applying for them, how do we actually go about um, contacting a school if they're not actually advertising a position? Because we know how to go about getting into the state system, but yeah, for those independent schools. Yeah, in our, uh, just to give you guys a bit of context, in this conference there's been a, a lot of um, focus on the public system, especially when I'm out on PRAC we had numerous meetings where we would go through the, you know, the, the states separated into bands and the point systems, but um, very little sometimes on private system and, that, and I think sometimes that gets a, a little bit neglected in terms of the benefits of that and how to do about that and it's a great question because I've heard sometimes they just hire within and it's kind of hard to put your foot forward or it's not like uh, Brisbane Grammar is going to be up on seek or, or something like that. So um, probably to or it might, might be on SEEK, I'm not sure. But to Darren, Elizabeth and Scott, what, from a private background, how do you go about finding jobs and also when you're looking for someone, putting them an ad up, whereabouts do you look for applicants? What you should do is actually contact HR of the private schools. That's the best thing you can do. Contact them directly. The school website will have their email. Um, and even if there aren't any jobs on SEEK, that doesn't mean that something's not in the pipeline to actually go on SEEK. And it would be a really good idea to actually send out your resume, regardless of whether anything's up on any of the job sites, because somebody could be planning on going on long service leave, but they just haven't put it up yet. And usually with private schools, they, well, I suppose state as well, they try to be quite organised. So if, res if a resume is already there and they've had a look at it, um, that will stand you in good stead. So go straight to HR with an email, attach your resume to the email anyway and have a very brief statement in your email of what you're looking for, what you can provide. I would suggest keeping it short and sweet because they're very busy. So that's the best way I've found um, about going finding a job in a private school. Yes, yes, it would be, definitely. Okay. If not, uh, you could always call the school. There's nothing wrong with just calling the school and asking for the email. They'll happily provide it. But that's the best way to go that I've found. And Scott, about 30 seconds about your experience. <clears throat> I think that's very good advice that you just received from Elizabeth. I think that showing that kind of initiative also marks you out as someone who's different. So remember what I said earlier about trying to mark yourself out as someone who, who stands out. Okay, so it's not a bad thing to do, particularly as we're coming towards the end of the academic year and we enter what I call silly season, so October, November, you'd know this, wouldn't you, Darren, where people make sudden life changes. People go. 
people decided, well, I've had enough now, or I'm going on long service, or I'm leaving my position for a year and leaving it vacant. You know, anything can happen. October, November. So. And Darren, about 20, 30 seconds. Uh, I would say that this happens all the time. I, I regularly receive um, resumes from people who are being proactive. I welcome it. I like it. It says something about the person, in my opinion. Uh, we also have people that contact us to volunteer to do things like basketball, netball coaching. Uh, we welcome that too. That gets them known to us. It's really about building a relationship with the school. Uh, just for your information and perhaps to put your mind at rest over this, we currently have a gentleman working at my school on primary who contacted me about four months ago from the UK to say he was moving over. He'd had a look at the website. He liked what we were doing. Could he come and do a couple of weeks essentially of work experience? Uh, that has served him enormously well because we're about to offer him a contract. So, you know, um, that kind of proactivity is is important and impressive. So it seems to me in the same way that you, it's hard to not be a wallflower on PRAC, it's almost like that with the hiring process as well, not to be a wallflower and let it come to you to go out and find those opportunities. Uh, we had a question over here. Hi, um, so just with behaviour management, is that something we're going to put in our, like our behaviour management philosophy? Obviously we're going to look at the school and see if that aligns. Is that something we're putting in our CV, talking about in our interviews, things like that? Are you um, primary, early? Primary. Primary. So Amanda, this might be a good question for you. Uh, so I would suggest that you put down some strategies that you've used or experienced on PRAC and be able to talk to those and um, explain to me how that might look and feel in a classroom that you have. That's, that's what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for you to be the expert and be able to wrangle all the children that are going to be in front of you because there are some really complex cases that you're going to come up against. But I'm, I'm wanting to know that you understand how you're going to make a classroom look and feel in a certain way and how you're going to engage those children. That's what I'm looking for. Okay. This question is for um, Suzanne. It's quite sometimes awkward to find times to do further study. I know I'm looking into doing masters, but you have to think about whether I could do a full-time job and do a masters as well, or what the implications of that is when you're working full-time, or should I take a gap you do further study? What would be your advice about the best time to do further study if people want to go ahead and do follow your route with masters, PhD? something along those lines. What would be your advice for finding that best time? Uh, do it before you have children. <laughs> or do it when your children are young. Um, that's what I found is I, I studied basically all through my teaching um, career and I found it easier when um, I was married without children. But then I studied again and I began my PhD when my children were quite young. And that was actually um, worked quite fine as well because I was at home with them um, and I found that they were quite easily um, entertained at that time, particularly with food and um, different activities I'd set up and I could get a little bit more writing done or I would actually write late into the night and then sleep in. Um, a supportive partner really helps there as well. My children now, so it's taken me seven years to complete my PhD and my children now have got one in year 11, one in year 8 and one in year 
year five, and it's probably the last couple of years have been a big struggle. I made the mistake of thinking, oh, you know, as they get older, it's going to get so much easier, when in fact it gets a lot more difficult because they actually need you more, I find, um, and the problems that they have quite often take a longer time to solve and also a lot of taxi driving in between. Um, so think about the right time of life to do it, but certainly I think, um, yeah, if you can do it before you have children, that's often um, a, a successful time to do it. Okay, fantastic. Um, a bit of a logistical question. Um, like you said, Scott, it's a bit of a silly season at the moment and no one particularly knows when they should start reaching out to schools, whether it should be now, whether it should be around our internship or even next year. Um, and also, fleeing into the mix holidays, people are going away around this type of time. Um, how best to kind of sort that out? So maybe to Darren or to Amanda or to anyone on the panel that may have an insight into this, when do schools start looking for people? And what can someone do if they're away during this period or something comes up where they can't be in their city or they're on holiday or something along those lines? Uh, it's hard to answer. I'm sorry that's not very helpful. But we have a variety of reasons why we employ. So we, we plan for growth. So next year, for example, at my school, we will be adding another year six class as to, to accommodate our enrolment growth. So I can begin to plan for that now. That's fantastic. Everybody in a school loves the ability to plan and get ahead of themselves. But equally, I had a person who had signed a contract and was due to start today who pulled out of that contract yesterday. So this morning I was scrambling to find somebody to fill that spot, which isn't easy. So there are two extremes. Uh, I suppose the bulk of um, employment opportunities are planned, and I would say therefore that probably early to mid-term three, which is now, uh, the beginning of that se season would be now, you can start to see those planned opportunities on SEEK. Uh, but don't rule out last-minute opportunities, particularly if you are prepared to jump in and do a four, five, six, ten-week contract just as a way to get into a school and to uh, give them an understanding of the skills you've got because if you're prepared to do that, that is really helpful if you're flexible. A question for Suzanne. Uh, what would be your advice to someone that wants to do early childhood but more in a rural setting? So if they want to go out and they, don't want it, they can't do or they want to network somewhere and maybe not do something central, what can they do to go and find early childhood centres kind of out in the sticks a bit more? Uh, look, there are definitely great opportunities to go rural in early childhood um, in the before school sector. Um, for instance, I know in um, Townsville at the moment we can't get teachers at all, so we've got kindergarten classrooms sitting without teachers. Um, so there is lots of opportunities. Um, I would really encourage um, you to do that. I think we both said that we had our first teaching experiences in Mackay. I was a kindergarten teacher up there and it was the most wonderful experience. Um, 
it is a challenge because you are often leaving friends and family if you're from Brisbane, but it's still worthwhile doing because they have amazing networks up there. Um, I know in Mackay they had a great, which they still do, uh, excellent early childhood teacher network, um, branches of Early Childhood Australia, Early Childhood Teachers Association, which you can join and they become like family. Um, because they are small areas, you often know all of the teachers um, and all of the schools as well and you make great connections with people. Uh, so they're very supportive places to teach. Um, so I would definitely recommend there are opportunities and, and um, they're certainly worthwhile taking. Right. And uh, unfortunately our last question, we could be here all day, but unfortunately our last question to Scott and Darren, were you devastated when football didn't come home? <laughs> Shall I take this one? Um, it never comes home. It never finds its keys. Yeah, it's too soon. I'm not talking about it. <laughs> Can you thank our panel for the questions?